Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Doctor Is In. I'm Dr. Nadia Saba, and this is our special series, What Plants Crave, where we're talking to growers specifically about the plants they grow um, and how they found horticulture uh, in the first place. I have the pleasure today of talking to Emily Churchill, Director of Growing and Food Safety at Vertical Harvest Farms in Jackson, Wyoming. I've been a fan of Vertical Harvest for a long time, since before even I started Dr. Greenhouse. Um, I was super intrigued by the audacity that they had and their ability to grow leafy greens and vegetables in a stacked greenhouse. And they use this rotating carousel, all with hydroponics. If you haven't seen pictures or videos, you have to check it out. It is really a sight to see. You know, Vertical Harvest is also well-known and respected inside and outside of our industry for employing traditionally underserved populations and really creating opportunities for those who are often overlooked and underestimated. You know, personally, I have a lot of respect and gratitude for Vertical Harvest's willingness and openness to share their experiences, show off their system, and share operational data to help all of us understand better how energy and other resources are being used, how they can be saved, and, and really help establish the benchmark and baselines that we need to make improvements. Truly, Vertical Harvest is a force to be reckoned with within our controlled environment ag industry. Um, okay, so Emily, Emily, welcome. It is so awesome to have you here on What Plants Crave. I'm really excited to learn more about you, the plants you grow, all the different plants you grow, and what your experience has been like growing vegetables in such a cool and unique system. Thanks, Nadia. It's very exciting to be on the podcast with you. Thank you for having me. And yeah, thank you for your your kind words about vertical harvest too. I, I feel exactly the same way, but I really appreciated it. Yeah, lots lots of respect your way. And I think a lot of people are in awe of kind of, you know, walking the talk. You don't just talk about what you can do for communities, for local communities. You guys are actually doing it. And you're really a model for, for others who want to, to do that. Um, so Let's talk about you. What got you interested in horticulture and indoor farming? Well, let's see. I think like a lot of people, um, I was kind of, it was kind of a coincidence and I was kind of in the right place at the right time, but I do have a science background. I, I really like fell in love with biology from a really early age. Um, it was always like all throughout school. And I also always really loved food. Food was like a really big part of, it was just a big part of my childhood, a big part of one of my family values. Um, and so I think, you know, farming has always been interesting to me as well. Um, and then, I mean, specifically for horticulture and indoor farming, I, you know, happened to move to Jackson, Wyoming, the month that Vertical Harvest opened um, operationally. And I lived about two blocks away, two streets away, and um, pretty quickly met somebody who was working there and got involved in volunteering there, basically in their like first month of operation. Um, and it was just an incredible place to be that, you know, everything about being inside the building was 
exciting. And yeah, so I volunteered for a couple months and then got hired on and um, have kind of learned learned my way around horticulture and and the industry just from being on the ground from um, from the from the work experience at Vertical Harvest. So I've been there for like over five years now. And yeah, I just feel so lucky that I, you know, happened to move to this small town in Wyoming and and had the opportunity to get involved in this industry because I am just, I just, it's so interesting and exciting and um, I'm so grateful to be a part of it. What brought you to Jackson of all places? Are you a skier? Are you a park enthusiast? I do like to ski, although I always laugh about this question because I actually am much more of a cross-country skier than a downhill skier. And everyone in Jackson is obsessed with, you know, downhill skiing, but, um, but I love them both. But I moved out here. It was really on a whim. I, I had a friend from college who was living out here. And after college, I stayed in Boston for a year. I was teaching. Um, I actually, yeah, I got pretty... I, I was really interested in it. I actually still am very interested in education. And so after college, I was teaching middle school. And then that was just a one year contract. And, you know, I was kind of like, after that job ended, I was not really ready to keep teaching. I just felt I just felt like I was really young. And I feel like to be a good teacher, you have to be 110% committed to it. And I just wasn't, I just wasn't sure. I just was like, I don't even know who I am yet. I, I was only 22. I was like, I can't teach these kids who to be yet. And so, yeah, that job ended and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do next. And I had a friend call me and she lived in Jackson and she was like, Hey, I have a room opening up out here. Um, if you want to move out here with me. And I was kind of like, Oh, that's crazy. Uh, like Wyoming, what even happens in Wyoming? <laughs> and then I thought about it for a month and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So I just packed up my car and drove out here and I'd never been to Wyoming before, but I am a big outdoors person. I always always have been. And so, you know, I knew it was a really amazing place to live and have access to the outdoors. So I was excited about that, but I had no idea Vertical Harvest was going to be here. That's amazing. Jackson called you to your calling. It really did. That's so cool. I always tell people it really feels like fate. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like you're exactly where you're supposed to be, the right place, right time. I want to ask you, you made a comment um, that I thought was really interesting. You said growing up that food was a family value. What does that mean? I think my dad is a, a really amazing cook and his mom was a really amazing cook. And so I think there's just a lot of people in my family who love cooking and I've been really into it. Um, and, you know, have a little bit of like dabbling in cooking school, although no one's actually like an official chef, but yeah, I, I think that food was always just a big, yeah, everyone really cared about food. We like talked about it a lot. It was always kind of like a big, a big part of the day. Like, you know, my dad will spend, you know, three to four hours cooking dinner. Like he loves, he just loves it. He loves to, he loves good ingredients and yeah. And you know, we'd always all eat together and yeah. So I just think it's something that, you know, I think some people, some people just eat food cause they have to, like, they're like, Oh yeah, I just got to do this because I get hungry and I got to like eat and then I move on with my day. But I think the way that like for my family, 
food is, it's just, you know, good food is just really important. Um, it's not something that's just like sustenance. It's something that, I mean, definitely brings us together, but just all something that we care about. And it's just some, it's something to be enjoyed and appreciated and valued. Did you grow up in sort of a rural or agricultural area where you had a lot of access to fresh food and produce being grown? Um, or was it really more driven by, you know, your, your, your dad and I don't know, sort of ancestry <laughs> enjoying cooking that then they sought out the food that they brought back in or, or is it kind of goes together? I, I, and I'm sort of just asking this question because you also, you just made that comment, you know, some people just eat because they have to, or because it's convenient. And when you think about European or Middle Eastern countries, I mean, you know, you just, everybody sits around the table. It is a big production. It is, you know, a time when the family talks together, communes together, and, and is a centerpiece of, of so much culture, all the cultures, yeah. right? I mean, you can make an argument that food is culture. And, and so I, I'm curious, like, yeah, how that all plays in your, even your accessibility to good food. Yeah, totally. I mean, we, I grew up in, for most of my childhood in, in New Jersey, um, kind of Northern central New Jersey. And so in this, in the winter time, you know, there's not much there, but in this, I mean, it is a, it, there, there are definitely, a, we grew up, you know, in, around farms and we would always go to the farmer's market. There were some amazing farmer's markets really close to our house. So I think kind of like the excitement of, of the summer seasonal food was always a big deal. Like, you know, everyone talks about Jersey corn and Jersey tomatoes and those are like two of my favorite foods of all time. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, I'm, actually my dad always had a garden growing up too. So that that's always super fun to be able to grow your own, you know, your own tomatoes or your own, whatever it is. Um, so I think that, yeah, and the seasonality, we would, there, there was definitely access to local food. Yeah. In, in the, in the spring and summer for sure. And I, yeah. And I think also to your other point about, you know, different world cultures all really, yeah. Food being a big food and meals being a big shared time. I mean, like my, I don't really know why, but my, when I'm home, like we usually don't eat dinner until nine or 10 PM, which is kind of a European thing. And, and yeah, like, you know, we have, we have a, um, a shared house with, with, with some of my dad's siblings and all my cousins and, um, my dad's sister lives in Italy. And so whenever they come, my dad and his sister, they, they both love to cook so much and, you know, the whole like joint family. Yeah. We'll all just sit at the kitchen table for like four hours. So there is kind of a little bit of a European vibe there. I don't really know, honestly, where that came from. My parents did live in, in the UK for a little bit. They lived in England for eight years, but I don't, you know, I don't think of England necessarily as being, you know, food the culture. quintessential yeah food <laughs> culture exactly but um I don't know if there is sorry our brain yeah exactly I know it's like I mean I love England so much but yeah I wouldn't really call it a, yeah. with the last name of Churchill you have to love <laughs> right. England right exactly exactly um, well that's I mean that's a good segue in talking about New Jersey I mean the excitement 
of summer, spring and summer vegetables. And I do think of tomatoes when I think of New Jersey, but mostly because my PhD advisor did his research and started his professorship at Rutgers doing greenhouse tomato research. So it all, it all comes together. I mean, does your dad, what does he think about growing plants year round and having access to fresh produce all the time and not just seasonally? Does he think that's really cool what you're doing? Yeah, he does. Um, He has, since I've gotten involved in vertical harvest, I think he's, he started trying out more, you know, techniques, different kind of growing techniques and, you know, starting the plants indoors and then bringing them out later and, and all of that kind of thing. So I, I think, yeah, he thinks it's really interesting. Cool. Well, great segue in talking about the sort of seasonality that we're forced with by growing outdoors and and now coming indoors. So tell us about what you specifically do at Vertical Harvest. And then let's talk about why, why would you grow? I mean, it feels obvious, but why would you grow these vegetables in a greenhouse in Jackson, Wyoming? Yeah, I mean, as you just alluded to earlier, the the short growing season is a great reason to be growing indoors in Jackson. We're um, at a pretty high latitude. And then in, on top of that, at a pretty high altitude as well, or above 6,000 feet. And so, so the growing season is, is really short here. I mean, you can't, you know, we still have snow outside and it's mid-May. So you can't really plant until June and then you know, it's gonna, it's definitely gonna start snowing again in October. So you really just have from June to September. And what can even, you grow outside? I know, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's tough, let me tell you. I've been trying the past couple of years. And, you know, even during the summer, it can still get below freezing kind of at any time. Like I remember wow. a few years ago on the summer solstice on June 21st, it snowed. And so growing outdoors here is definitely challenging. I do think Jackson is kind of right. You know, Jackson is right at the base of the Teton mountain range and right on the other side of the Tetons on the Idaho side, um, there's a little bit better of a microclimate there for growing. It's a little bit more, I'm not totally sure why it's, so, you know, some effect of the mountains, but they, there's a lot of farms on the Idaho side of the Tetons and not very many on the Jackson side. Um, I, there's just, it's a little bit more of a mild climate, I think. Um, and so, uh, there are some amazing local farms in the area, but it's still, regardless of that, it's still a short growing season. So that's why, that's one reason it's great to grow here. Um, we're also a pretty isolated town, And so Jackson has to truck in and fly in pretty, you know, a a lot of food and it has to travel pretty long distance. And so that's another great reason to be growing food locally. And yeah, I, I think, you know, the way that Vertical Harvest started, there was just kind of this small plot of land in the town. It's like, you know, 100 feet by 30 feet. And the town was kind of like, what should we do with this land? And the the town council, I think, kind of put out a request for public comment, a request from the from the town, like, what do you think we should do with this? And that's kind of how the idea came to be for vertical harvest. But I think it's kind of a it's a small plot. It's kind of in a in a 
it's like right up next to a parking garage, as you know, from being there. And so it would be kind of a strange, or it's just kind of like a long, you know, narrow, skinny plot. It wouldn't, wouldn't be that suited for a lot of different types of buildings. So I think putting a, you know, a stacked vertical greenhouse there was a really creative um, and amazing thing to do with kind of this strange strip of land. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, 100 feet by 30 feet, there's so many greenhouses, just normal greenhouses that have those dimensions, right? I mean, just a regular old greenhouse could have fit right there and done and done, really simple. But to go vertically and and basically create three greenhouses on top of each other and some space to have an office and, you know, a a storefront and all that kind of stuff that you guys have is really unique and creative use of that space. You know, because you went vertically, I, I think a lot of people sort of scratch their heads and say, well, why a greenhouse? Why didn't you guys just build like a real vertical farm? on that plot of land. Do you have any insights into that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, originally, I don't, I don't know this for sure, but I, I, I think originally one of the proposals to the town was to just put like a hoop house there, kind of what you're saying, but we had, yeah, I mean, I think part of it was Nona Yahya, who's our CEO, um, she was originally the architect for the project. That's how she got involved, and and I think I'm. And then it, you know, it was her and and Penny McBride and a diff- another co-founder who kind of had a sustainability and farming background. And I think between the two of them, there was yeah, the this idea came up of of you know like why why stop at one story, um, and I think that. I also think Nona's background as an architect, she talks a lot about creating, you know, architecture that really enhances the community that it's in. And I think there's something really, there's something really beautiful and really special about having that building be a greenhouse, all of the glass facade, you know, being able to see in and see the plants growing you know, literally every day people in Jackson walk by the greenhouse, people just like stop dead to stare at it and just be like, what is going on here? And it really is so beautiful. And um, it was designed to be a community resource and a community hub. And I think um, having it be a greenhouse with that, with that glass really helps draw people in and, and really, yeah, just, yeah, just adds to the, the Jackson community. It is a really cool building. I mean, the first time I visited, you know, I was going to be coming the next morning and I arrived that night and was at the hotel, staying at the hotel across the street from it. And just like the pink glow and just, it's, it's such a unique structure and it does really stand out as something architectural, architectural and beautiful. And it's hard to miss if you're in that corner of Jack. I mean, how do you miss it? Yeah. And, and I, and, and you guys actually invite visitors in. Yeah. Yeah. I will. That has diminished since COVID, unfortunately, but yeah, originally we had, um, yeah, like you said, we had a little market in there so people could come in they could buy the produce and they could also they could also just, we also just had like, you know, other little gift kind of items for sale as well. Other like local artisans 
Um, and then we also do public tours a um, couple days a week. And yeah, you know, a big, you know, it's, a, it's a, the, the, project, the project is a public-private partnership with the town of Jackson. Um, and so it is really important to us to, yeah, to be a community resource. Since COVID, it's been tricky to allow visitors in, but we're just starting to get back to doing that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that I want to talk about with you, but just on that point about, you know, having visitors come through pre and and hopefully post COVID and opening your doors. I mean, that also makes you really unique to our industry. One, you have the stacked greenhouse uh, model that I don't know if I've seen really anywhere else in application other than beautiful diagrams and depictions of what it could be, Um, but also sort of your open door policy and letting people in on the secret, right? And on, you know, what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. Why, why is it because, or were you forced to because of this public private partnership or, or, or is it just part of the value system that Vertical Harvest has um, to share with the community in general? Like, where does that spirit come from? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a value of the company. We always talk about um, one of our core values is transparency. And we're always like, we, you know, we literally have transparent buildings. And so I definitely think it's a cultural thing. And I think the public-private partnership has been so valuable for us and it's gonna be so valuable for us going forward to other communities as well, um, you know, for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, we're really, we really believe that Vertical Harvest is, um, you know, is gonna be civic infrastructure in, in future urban locations. And so I think that, you know, I think it's important that people, when, when we want to, when we build farms in new communities that people feel connected, they feel like they know where their food is coming from. They feel like, you know, they can share their, if, if they work there, those jobs are, they can share that experience with the local community. So I think it's really part of, of the values of the company. Um, it doesn't, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's really part of the values of the company. Yeah. Yeah. So Let's step back to a little bit of the technical talk. So you're growing in a greenhouse in an environment where it can snow in June (laughs) and you can dip below freezing in the summer. So again, why a greenhouse exactly? Like, are there benefits in your climate, in your specific location of growing in a greenhouse versus say a fully enclosed vertical farm or farm that has opaque walls. Do you get benefit from your climate as well? So I have a lot of thoughts about this. So first of all, I feel like our farm in Jackson is kind of a combination of greenhouse growing and indoor growing. And depending on which part of the building you are in, it's either more like a greenhouse or more like an indoor, um, fully indoor farm. And so that is um, actually quite challenging, but also has, you know, we've learned a lot from it. But, you know, as an example, the tomatoes, which are grown on the third floor, they have like the, they have a glass ceiling and a glass facade. And so the tomatoes are growing in 
it's you know very very much like a greenhouse a true greenhouse environment whereas the lettuce which is on those rotating carousels is kind of in the middle so the lettuce spends some of its time like about you know a quarter quarter to a third of its time along the the window so it's it's getting that greenhouse effect of you know the sunlight through the glass um but then it spends a good chunk of its life cycle you know kind of like inside the building as well these carousels are in an l shape so they go they go up the the glass facade and then kind of back into the building and then back down again and so lettuce is really a combination of you know, it's getting sunlight and it's getting, we have artificial lights in there as well. We have LEDs. And then we also grow microgreens and what we call petite greens, kind of like baby salad greens. And those we grow on rack systems, stacked rack systems. And they, they are kind of essentially full indoor growing. They don't really, um, they don't get any natural sunlight. And yeah. And I, and I think the, the building as a whole is actually quite subject to the outside weather, um, which is a challenge. It, you know, it can be helpful, but I also think it's kind of a challenge, keeps us on our toes. Um, but yeah, so I think in general, the building is kind of this is kind of this hybrid between indoor growing and greenhouse. And then it has even within that has this gradient depending on what crop we're talking about. I mean, I think it's really clever in just thinking about what crops you're growing where and using the natural resources that are available. You know, when I think of tomatoes, they like a lot of light, they like it hot and they need to be tall. So, you know, exactly. Whoever's genius idea was to grow them on top. Bravo. I feel like that was the right thing to do. And then lettuce, right? They don't need as much light. So they don't need all that exposure to the sun. Um, and so you rotate them away and, and bring them back and they're still going to hit their DLI, you know, with that amount of exposure that they get. And then of course you have the LEDs and the microgreens, you know, are, are, are the microgreens fully in supplemental lighting or do they get any exposure to sunlight? Um, very minimal. And it also, again, we have a couple, we have a couple different rack systems within the building um yeah we kind of have the original ones and then we kind of um as time went on you know a couple years in we put it we kind of built our own like newer rack systems and then most recently as you know you helped us with this project we put in um our kind of third iteration of racks and that particular iteration is a fully enclosed area. And that has been a really interesting, uh, yeah, just an interesting part of, of the farm and the learning that we've done over the past five, you know, five, six years as operators. I think that we, we call it compartment five. That's um, in the building split up into seven compartments. So compartment five is the one where we kind of built this, we call it like the, a box within the box. Um, and that is fully controlled there's you know no no outside sunlight and that has been really helpful for us as we think about how we want to design and build our future farms Um, and I think the future locations are going to be much more of you know true CEA like true controlled environment less of the greenhouse stuff I think there's still um, discussion about having the glass facade, as I talked about more of like a, more as a 
you know, more as an asset to the community and, and the architecture and yeah, m- more from more from that angle. But the this new compartment five, our new our new growing area is really kind of what we're using for, you know, for R&D for our future farms at the moment, trying to figure out how do things grow best. Um, I mean, you have grown you're growing a lot of different plants. You have, <laughs> you have experience growing a lot of different plants um, for commercial production. What, what do they have in common? What makes them different and unique? Do you like growing one more than the other? Yeah, <laughs> you have a favorite child? <laughs> mm, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're really different. Um, you know, obviously, tomatoes as vining crops are really different than, than greens. Um, they are, you know, we, t- we kind of talk about tomatoes. You, you have, you just have the plants around for so much longer. You have mm. them for six to eight months. Um, and so they need a little bit more love and a little bit more attention and you kind of have to, um, you know, you're always trying to strike this balance of are they in a vegetative state or in a reproductive state and having them be stressed, but not too stressed. And you kind of, yeah, you got to take pretty good care of them to keep them around and, and producing well for, for that period, that long of a period of time. Whereas, um, you know, for leafy greens, you can, you can push them pretty hard. You're kind of like, you know, they're, they're only going to be, they're only going to be around for whatever, you know, six to eight weeks. And so you can, you can really try and push them to, yeah, to grow as fast as possible. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. It's kind of an interesting difference. And I think, I don't know, I I think I started in, in the microgreen department. So I have, have always had a little bit of a soft spot for them, but I really like growing all of the different kinds. And I think testing out new varieties is always really interesting and yeah I don't know I I like I like them all for different reasons I think okay okay good good answer good answer uh good 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 plant mom yeah (laughs) yeah exactly it's also you know the microgreens are it's really fun to bring people through the farm and people don't know that much about microgreens still and so you know, when you give people samples of different microgreens we're growing, they're just kind of blown away by the amount of flavor that they have. And, and how many, you know, we've at any given time, we're growing usually like around 30 varieties. So we've got a lot of different varieties going there. Um, And so people get so excited about that, but then people also get so excited about the rotate rotating carousels, as you were talking about earlier, the lettuce systems like that, it's just that's a really cool thing to see it's really cool to just see this like sea of lettuce moving towards you slowly and then people are always blown away by the tomatoes too it's just you know walking in there and feeling like you're kind of in this jungle mm-hmm. um so I don't know I think they're all really uh special to see for the for that carousel system how exactly do you irrigate those plants I mean I'm just I'm I'm you know, you have a stationary plant and it's like, okay, so you have deep water culture, you have like water streaming across them and NFT, you know, or maybe you have drip irrigation for tomatoes. But if you have a plant that's always on the move, how exactly do you irrigate that plant? Do you take it to the water as opposed to bringing the water to it? 
Yeah, kind of. So the way that they're designed is that, yeah, they're, they're constantly rotating, but I can set, uh, you know, on the, on our Priva system, you know, I want them to irrigate every 10 minutes or whatever it is. And um, they will stop in position. So along the along the left side of the carousel, there are emitters, you know, maybe every eight inches or something. And um, the trays will kind of, when, when they, when it's time to irrigate, the trays will stop kind of, they kind of like lock in place. They stop right under the emitter. And then as soon as the irrigation cycle is done, it starts rotating again. Do you think there's an advantage to moving plants around continuously? Like, could it discourage pests? Or could it give it different wavelengths of light? Or, I mean, totally, totally. I mean, I think that there definitely are advantages. I will say that I don't know if the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. I'm not sure we will be replicating these systems anytime soon. We're definitely not planning on having carousels in our next facility, which is going to be in Westbrook, Maine. Um, if we, I don't know if we'll ever go back to them someday, but the Karis, they are, they are, they do have a lot of challenges, but I do think the ideas behind them, you know, the, the idea behind them was, I think there was some good ideas. And then I also think that there probably are some advantages, like you were saying for, for pest management, pest management with having them constantly moving. I think it's hard, you know, it's, that's just harder for, for pests to get situated and get comfortable if they're always moving. I think it, you know, it like kind of inherently gives you some airflow, which is always good for the plants. Um, and it, it, you know, and then the reason that they were designed the way they are is that they can, they can take advantage of the natural sunlight along the facade and then also get the supplemental art like LEDs like in the building. And, and I think that's very clever. Um, and another awesome thing about the carousels is the harvest kind of comes to you. So they're actually like ergonomically and, you know, from an employee standpoint, they're pretty accessible because those trays are constantly just moving towards you. And you just, when, when our employees harvest, you know, it's like they harvest a tray, then you hit the button, the next tray comes into that slot. So, you know, for, I think from an accessibility standpoint, it was a pretty good idea or, you know, or for like, you know, for scouting or, Oh um, yeah. You know, anytime the you interact to you. With, yeah, they just come to you. And so I think that, you know, it was a clever idea, but the flip side of that is that the maintenance for these systems is really not accessible. It's like the opposite of accessible. So like there are some tasks that are, that are great, but then the maintenance really, you know, you really, you have to climb out there on these systems. It's really hard to get out there and um, fix any irrigation problems. And they're also, yeah, they're just pretty complicated mechanical structures with, uh, you know, lots of sprockets and chains and, um, and there's a lot of weight on them all at at, at any given time. And so they're getting wet and they're getting wet. Yeah. But I actually wrote that down too. the dripping is, has been a huge issue for Mm -hmm. us, honestly. So, so, you know, I think they were a really cool idea and I, I think it was really interesting to pioneer, but I'm not sure 
you know, I'm not sure they're the best for consistent production. And it's also, you know, it's challenging too for, you know, as, as a grower, the plants are kind of rotating through a bunch of different environments throughout the building. And it's just, you know, it's really hard for me to know exactly what's going on at any given time. It's really hard to control variables with these carousels. Um, you know, I never, it's, it took us years to kind of figure out how much DLI they were actually getting. Um, and that came through this partnership with the University of Wyoming. Dr. Karen Panter, she came up and we actually kind of put these light meters on an actual carousel tray and it was so it would rotate through yeah, yeah because between the sunlight and the leds but then also it's a little hard to describe without a visual but you know while the plants are coming towards you that you know maybe they're like three to four feet away from the leds but when they rotate back away from you then now they're like six feet away from oh the gosh. leds so you kind of have these two tiers and then, yeah, so anyways, it was really hard to understand how much light they were actually getting. I know for a fact that they're going through different temperature zones, you know, and the carousels take yeah. about 20 minutes to rotate. So, you know, throughout that 20 minute time period, they're going through different temperature zones, different amounts of humidity. And so I think as a grower, they've honestly been pretty challenging to just to kind of figure out how to optimize the best growth because there's just so many variables at all times. That is so super interesting. Um, <laughs> just all the microclimates that mm -hmm. those plants are seeing in a 20 minute cycle, 24 hours a day. Exactly. So yeah, if you have a problem, which variable is it? Exactly. Is it the light? Is it like a, a short exposure to a cold facade? Is exactly. It... Wow. Um, exactly. And I do think the, as I said earlier, there's seven different compartments in the building and um, they're not sealed off from each other either. And part of that is because they, these carousels move oh, between a couple yeah. different compartments. And so, you know, that makes it hard from a control standpoint. Uh, in terms of like, you know, really controlling temperature or humidity or whatever it is, but also, you know, just thinking back to pests, like it's kind of easy for them to move throughout the building and not really know how they're moving throughout the building because these plants are moving through different zones all the time. Yeah, um, you don't really have sealed compartments where if you have a problem, you can isolate it right there. Exactly. But everything else is safe as long as exactly. you've like quarantined that area. Exactly. Yeah, we've seen and, you know, like on the in the tomato room on the third floor, we we have bees in there for for pollination. And, <laughs> you know, every with every hive we get, there's like one or two bees that get lost and they somehow <laughs> find their way onto the first and second floor. And, you know, they can't really find their way back. So there's yeah, there it, the it's challenging to not have the compartment sealed off. Wow. You know, I, with the, with the, um, research, uh, partnership you did with the university of Wyoming to look at the, the DLI, when you, when you did that study, did you make changes to the supplemental lighting? Did you discover that maybe they weren't getting enough light or they were getting plenty of light? D did that inform you about anything? Yeah, it did. We discovered that they were not getting enough light. 
And so we switched out the lighting that we had with those carousels. But I also think that's kind of just a function of, you know, the industry evolving and just, you know, just general time. Like the building when it was, when it first opened in 2016, all of the lights above the lettuce carousels were HPS lights. And, you know, those only have a certain shelf life to begin with. And, you know, between 2016 and now, there's been such incredible development in LEDs. And so, you know, I think we would have moved to LEDs regardless, but that study really helped us understand what light intensity we needed those LEDs to be at. So that did help us understand kind of where the DLI was currently and where we needed it to get to. As a grower, um, as a director of growing, what are the variables? I mean, we've talked a lot about lighting here, but what are the other variables that you're monitoring and managing? Um, I mean, you're also dealing with these different compartments and different plants. How do you keep it all straight? I mean, what are you looking for when you walk in every morning? What data are you looking at? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, I you know, this is a little bit of a boring answer, but I think, you know, definitely the the standard, the standard metrics that I've, that growers are looking at, uh, you know, coming in every morning and checking the graphs on the Priva that, you know, the 24 hour cycle is really important that, to look at every day. So, you know, always looking at temperature and um, relative humidity. And I think, you know, those two are huge. We're also, you know, at, being hydroponic, constantly looking at water readings, EC and pH and all of those kind of things. I mean, I think those are really the big ones. And oh, and uh, yeah, those are really the big ones. And what are you looking for? I mean, are you looking for blips and spikes? Are you, how do you sort of, if, if you see something that looks out of range, what do you do? Like what action do you take? Well, I think in addition to kind of looking at that data on a daily basis, it's really important to, you know, be looking at the crops every day as well, be actually, you know, doing a walkthrough of each of the different areas of the building. Um, and I think you kind of have to use, you have to kind of take that quantitative data and the qualitative data and combine those to, to make informed decisions. I mean, you know, the sensors that we have, they're only in, you know, they're only in one or two or whatever it is. They're only in certain spots in the room. And so, you know, I think, it's important to go into each of those compartments and and really kind of like feel how how the environment feels. Does it feel cold? Does it feel warm? Does it feel too humid? And are you know are there weird pockets like or or what's going on? So I think um, you know I kind of like to come in, look at look at the data, look at the graphs, then go upstairs check out what's going on. Is there anything weird going on? Maybe, you know, also it's just so critical to have, to have a team that is, you know, constantly making sure that the systems are all working correctly in the building too. You know, there can be just like, you know, weird one-off things where I can't think of a good example, but you know, like if a, if a misting nozzle is clogged or something like that, you can just have these, these small things that actually, you know, over a 24 hour period or longer than that can have a big impact on the environment. And so, mm. 
you know, it's really critical to do walkthroughs for that reason too, to make sure that all the equipment's functioning as you want it to. Um, and yeah, so I think between, yeah, looking at the, the previous 24 hour period and then going up there and looking at the crops and, you know, it's just seeing how the roots look and seeing how the leaves look, like what color are the leaves? Um, how does the new growth look? All of those things. And then, yeah, looking at after, you know, doing all of those observations, going back and deciding if you need to make any, you know, changes for the next 24 hours. And also I always look at the, the weather forecast as well. Um, I don't think that's kind of more because our, our Jackson location is kind of more of that hybrid of like greenhouse slash indoor. But, you know, for example, on a cool cloudy day, which we've been having a lot recently, I can pull the pull the misting back. Um, it doesn't because the humidity will will hold better. The vents won't be as open um, because of probably because it's cooler oh. outside. And so, you know, on a on a cooler day, I don't need as much misting. But on a really sunny day, I, I definitely do because of that greenhouse effect. And so. So you're doing predictive control yourself. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, it it doesn't always work, but yeah, trying to, and, you know, kind of this, this past week we had a couple nights where it got, you know, down to like 19 degrees. And so you might want to, you know, that's not totally the typical pattern for May. And so, you know, I'll bump the heat up a little bit if I know it's going to be cold that night, um, that, that kind of thing. So it, yeah, the outside weather definitely affects us more than, more than, you know, I think most people would guess or, and definitely more than I expected when I first started. In Jackson, is it easier to control your environment in the winter or summer? And by summer, I mean like true summer and not like June 21st, it's still snowing outside. <laughs> um. I don't know if this, well, for us, it's definitely easier to control the environment in the winter time. Okay. Um, but I think that is a function of, um, we do not have enough cooling capacity in this, uh, in this farm, which I, I don't think anyone, we just didn't know at the time and the way yeah. it was designed, but, um, we have a really hard time, um, keeping it cool enough in there for the lettuce in the summertime. Oh, sure. The tomatoes have, they love it. They're they're thriving. Yeah. Um, And now that we have this fully sealed um, rack system, as I mentioned, that that's like our, our newer thing that we put in, in 2021, that has no problem in summertime either, but the lettuce, the lettuce struggles in the summertime. We just can't really keep it cool enough. How did, how long did it take you to get a feel for these rooms to know like, oh, this is off or, oh, this is perfect. Cause again, you have so many different plants you're growing in so many different environments and you didn't necessarily come from horticulture. Like totally. was it a month? Was it a year? Honestly, I would say it was a couple years. It took, it took a long time when I, yeah, like I said, when I first started, I was just doing microgreens, which, you know, because they're, they're really short grow time. So like, you know, between one and three weeks, they're a little bit more straightforward in terms of, um, in terms of climate, but yeah, I mean, it took, it, it took a long time to get used to the different 
all the different aspects of the building. We had, um, I think the second year, I, I th- yeah, I think in year two, we um, brought in a consultant from um, this company called Vortis Greenhouse Consultants. And his name was Martin and he would come, you know, about once a month and then it, it would kind of slowly tapered off, but he, he would come and visit the facility and, you know, he kind of taught me everything I know about Priva and um, just a lot of general growing knowledge as well. But I think um, his insights and his, what he, his knowledge that he transferred to me and to a couple of the other growers have been really critical in really understanding kind of, yeah, the relationship between, the facility and the plants and um, yeah, how all of the systems work together. And yeah, so I think it took us, it took us a long time to, to get those things dialed. And it's, it's always kind of an ongoing process. Um, We've also, I think over the years, we've put in a couple different um, new growing systems into there too. Like, as I mentioned, we, you know, we kind of have three different iterations of racks, of rack systems in the building. And, and so, yeah, we put in those new type of growing areas and, and we've kind of rearranged the building a little bit in some ways, like we kind of had packaging in one area to begin with, and then moved it to a different area actually for food safety reasons. And yeah, I think we're kind of always playing around and experimenting in, in the building. So I think there's always a lot to learn, but it, I think it definitely took, honestly, it took the first couple of years to really understand how, how the building worked as this like one big ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Especially when you have them open to each other, those compartments. Exactly. <laughs> one big ecosystem. Exactly. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, you guys are collaborating with the Resource Innovation Institute, sharing some of your data, um, production data, energy, water, waste. I mean, it's really impressive helping uh, to, to sort of benchmark this industry. Uh, and, and we don't have a lot of participation as of yet from all of the various sectors of controlled environment agriculture. But I just wanted to get a feel for why you guys agreed to, to doing this and what you've learned and what you're hoping to learn and what you're hoping the industry at large can learn from this sort of partnership. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think you mentioned this earlier as well. I think we have all vertical harvest has always been pretty open about what we're doing and how we're doing it and all of the data that we have. And I think that's not always true in the industry. And so I think, um, you know, we were excited about this collaboration. And then I think Hannah Boulin, who is our director of impact and sustainability has really been leading this charge, but partnering with, with this project kind of helped us in two ways. First of all, just helping us understand costs, but also understanding, um, yeah, the sustainability impacts of all of these different factors. And yeah, I mean, I think we just want to be part of being really transparent about the data that comes out of these farms and how we can all work as an industry to improve that. Um, I think, you know, specifically that going through this process with our RII is going to, has helped us shape how we think about KPIs and 
our general environmental management system, um, how we want to measure things. But I also think, you know, we're really excited to see as more people participate in this, what the comparative data is and how that helps us set targets. And yeah, I mean, I think the more data that we can share, the better that the better technology we can develop and the, you know, the more that we can learn about how to make CEA in general more efficient. Yeah. Why do you think there is hesitancy from the industry to, to collaborate on projects like this or share their data? Well, I don't really know, but I think, I think it's pretty competitive right now. I think the industry is still new and, and young. And because of that, I don't know, I think there's a lot of excitement and I think there are just a lot of people just want to figure out how to be the best really fast. And so I think that's a little bit part of it. And I also think, you know, something that we, that we talk about a lot at Vertical Harvest is really wanting to understand our operational data and our energy usage and water usage and, you know, all of those things. Cause I think CEA in general is, it's really portrayed and, and, and touted as being, really sustainable in, in how much less water it uses and how much less land it uses and, and, and all of those things, which I do think are true, but I think there's kind of these general metrics or these general kind of like facts that everyone uses for CEA. You know, it's like, you don't know, between like 70 to 90% less water usage. And I think, I think that not that those things aren't true, but I just think, you know, we just really need to dig into the data a little bit more and really see what's going on there. And, and at Vertical Harvest, we just are excited to really dig into that and see really what our numbers are, because we just want to be, you know, we just want to be as straightforward about it as we can. And once we have that baseline, those benchmarks, we can start improving from there. But I do think, um, honestly, there's a little bit of kind of this greenwashing effect in the industry where we know that it is sustainable and it has a lot of benefits and it really can help with with resource efficiency. But but I think that, you know, the question, I, I just think we really need to dig into the data to, to see like where we're at and where we can go. And I think just kind of, you know, just saying like, oh, we're we use water efficiently and, and leaving it at that, you know, isn't really enough. Yeah. I think what you just described is really powerful. I mean, I, I hear a few things. One is knowledge is power <laughs> by knowing where you're starting from will only help you make better decisions about how to improve upon what you've already started with, with your foundation to not only maybe improve your production indices, right? Those KPIs, but also to reduce your impact on the environment and increase efficiency and sustainability and water use efficiency. And and by actually measuring it, you know where you're starting from and where to go from there. The other thing that I heard in that implicitly is a fear. There's, there's a fear in this industry that if we pull back the curtain and reveal 
that we really don't use water efficiently. We really are wasting energy. We really are dumping shit down the drain, excuse my language, right? That maybe we're not positively impacting our communities and environment like we're all declaring through press releases and interviews and publications and and all these different things. And the last thing we want to do is put a spotlight on what we're on the deficiencies of our industry. We want to stay focused on the positives of our industry. And fear is really powerful. Fear is a more powerful driving factor than knowledge (laughs) and, and, and increasing our knowledge and educating ourselves. And even thinking about my PhD research where I was really focused on evaluating water use efficiency of growing tomatoes in a greenhouse. And, and I poked a hole in that idea that growing any plant, but let's just say tomatoes hydroponically in a greenhouse is more water efficient than growing a tomato out in the field. And all, you know, here I am in, in Tucson, Arizona, I came from California. I mean, Water is like the the headline in every yeah. conversation. Yep. And, you know, I'm reading this literature. I'm like, okay, whatever my project's going to be, it has to be about water. And so I'm like reading the literature and, and all I see is hydroponics, irrigation, irrigation, hydroponics, fertigation, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and here I am in Arizona and we are relying 100% on evaporative cooling to manage a really hot and dry climate to grow these tomatoes. And I was like, nobody has looked And how much water we're using to cool this greenhouse. It's all about irrigation. Like there is a missing number from this equation. And and so that's what I focused in on. And sorry, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. When you add evaporative cooling to the water balance of a hydroponically grown tomato crop in a greenhouse, it looks a lot like field production in California. You yeah. know, I mean, there are so many other benefits, right? I mean, TOVs, right? right? I mean, it's totally. fresher, better quality year round, totally. you know, local, blah, 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 blah. All the things that we know are positive about controlled environment agriculture. But to make this claim just straight out the gate that it's a more efficient use of water is not always true. And we need totally. more people to pull back this veil so that then we can say, How can we then improve? How can we stand by this claim? What do we need to do to make this a reality? Because just that, that, you know, my finding was not the end of the story. That should be the beginning of the next chapter. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think CEA has the potential to do really amazing things for sustainability and, and resource management. But I just, yeah, you know, like, like you said, I just think it's really important to be very honest about where we're at now and what our baseline is and where we want to go and how do we get there. And so that the proper, you know, the proper resources get put in into figuring out the answers to, to those questions too, you know, like the, the research and, and all of that. And, um, and I would also say too, I, I don't think that it's that's not just a, um, a criticism or not just an issue in in our industry. I think I think in in general, I think kind of across yeah, across right. all industries, you know, I think 
people, a lot of, you know, lots of people want to be sustainable and they, and they want to be able to have that as a company value. And, and they want to be able to say that they're making strides towards that. And I think it's not just a, a CEA thing. I think yeah. everybody needs to just be really, really clear about what their, their baselines are in terms of the impact that they're having and, and how they're, you know, going to put a, a thorough plan into place for, for improving all of those things. Yeah. I mean, we need to get real with ourselves around a lot of issues in this world, yeah. but, but, you know, climate <laughs> and sustainability being really important. I mean, we were talking before, you know, we started about the weird climate we're having in May and it's been like the Midwest here. We, it's been in the sixties, uh, in, in the middle of May, we've had afternoon thunderstorms. I mean, next in my mind is tornadoes. I mean, this, this yeah. is, And then it's going to be a hundred degrees this weekend. Like I'm, I'm scared. And the more real that we can be with ourselves and with each other, the faster we can tackle these challenges that are practically behind us now, not because we've solved them, but because we've just ignored them. And, and it's, it's frustrating. And, you know, just the last thing that I want to say is, you know, being afraid to share data and talk about what we're doing and being afraid that people are going to realize maybe we're not as sustainable or efficient or positive as, as we like to say we are. The other side is we also need to be afraid <laughs> of the regulators coming in and saying, and saying, you have to do this in terms of energy and water and, and decarbonization. And without us telling them where it is we're starting with, because maybe we're doing a better job than we even think we are. And wouldn't that be amazing if we actually started sharing this and we're like, hey guys, we're actually doing better than we thought. What were we afraid of in the first place? And then we could get the regulators off our back a little bit and be like, no, we're already doing a great job. But even without even doing that, you know, like the regulators are also afraid, right? All they see is this burgeoning industry that is using all this light and potentially using all this power and resources and blah, blah, blah. But without actual numbers to base any decisions off of whether you're a grower trying to decide how you're going to manage your climate or your irrigation water um, or you're a regulator or a utility trying to manage, right, how your users how your constituency are using resources, we're all blind. Totally. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to see as this industry continues growing and and continues, um, you know, the the public gets, you know, starts to understand it better and and the government and the regulators and all, you know, everyone kind of just has more awareness of it. It'll just be interesting to see how everything evolves together. And I also think too, to your point, like about, you know, maybe we're doing better than we thought we were. That was one of the interesting things that came out of the RII report that that they sent to us about vertical harvest was that that we actually were doing better in a, in, in a lot of things that I didn't, I mean, I didn't really know what to expect, I guess, but there were a lot of really positive things in that report. And you know, I would say the the general gist of it, or at least what I took away from it was, you know, at, over the past four years, they looked at, they looked at our last four years of data, 
we've essentially figured out how to grow more plants within the same building, within the same footprint. And so um, we've, you know, overall increased our efficiency. And, you know, that was really exciting to see. And it's kind of obvious now that I think about it, because I know that we've been growing more plants in there. But, um, you know, that was that was like a positive outcome of that report. That's awesome. I love that. I love hearing that. It doesn't it's it's not always negative feedback. There's there's positive feedback. And I'm sure you take a lot of pride in the fact that what on what you've learned in these last five or six years, um, those couple of years it took for you to get a feel for the environment and you've become a better grower for it and your KPIs have followed suit. Totally, totally. And, you know, lots of credit to to the rest of the team as well. I mean, I think we've all put more we just put more growing systems in that building. We've built more growing, you know, infrastructure in there. And that just helps us, you know, be more efficient too. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, let's let's jump off of the sustainability train for a second. So the other part of your title is food safety, director of food safety. Talk a little bit about that. You know, a question we get a lot from growers and from people within the industry is, you know, how they can create uh, and maintain a healthy environment for their crops, um, you know, reduce incidences of mold growth or certain bacteria maybe in the water. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about your experience with that and, and any tips that you might have for newer existing growers of any crop? Definitely. I think... A big part of food safety is having great documentation. Um, And so you really want to make sure that, yeah, you've got, you know, good SOPs and good logs and great checklists. And those are the things that really help you kind of stay on track on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. But I think in addition to that, honestly, training your staff is hugely important. Um, I think people need to understand that food safety is something that, you know, you value as a as a team and they need to understand that it's something that they need to, you know, be looking out for on a day-to-day basis as well. And, you know, you, you just kind of need that awareness and that buy-in from the team for the, for the documentation as well. Like your, your staff is going to be, are going to be the people that are filling out a lot of that paperwork a lot of the time. Um, and they're going to be the people that notice things and catch things. And, um, and so I think it's really important that, as a manager in that space, you're, you're training people so that they have the knowledge and training them um, so that they have, you know, like a positive association with food safety in, in the way that, you know, it's kind of like, if somebody notices a problem, you know, you know, like you said, whether they, you know, they see a little bit of mold or, you know, if something falls on the floor, you know, there's no, there's no hesitancy or fear of reporting that because it's a bad thing, but it's like people are encouraged to report things that they they see as potential hazards. Um, I think that's important. I think, Hmm. you know, I've experienced this at Vertical Harvest. We, 
because we um, we're GAP certified and we usually we do that audit with with the USDA and being audited is like not necessarily the most fun thing. It's kind of stressful. You have this person coming in there. They're really closely observing you. They're combing through all of your paperwork. And, um, you know, I always feel a little bit nervous that day. And I know that, um, you know, I know that the team does too. And so it's, it's easy because it feels like a test or, or, you know, because it's an audit to, to have that feel like not a very fun experience, but I think it's important to always, you know, to talk about food safety regularly and to talk about it in a way of like, this is how we become better operators and better food growers. And this is how we become a better company. And we always, like, yes, we have to be audited every year, but we always want to be going above and beyond that because this is something that we care about. And so I think, yeah, I just kind of, I think having that positive mindset about it is, is important. And the last thing I would say, which I kind of already said this earlier in the podcast too, but I think, um, I think having a really solid kind of like facilities slash maintenance team or, you know, whatever you might want to call it at, at your specific farm. But I think having equipment operate correctly is just kind of the foundation for everything. It's a, I would say it's really important for food safety. It's really important for growing. Um, it's just important for consistency overall. And I think that's kind of a lesson we've learned in Jackson. We have so many different types of um, systems in there and so many different pieces of equipment so many yeah so many different maintenance <laughs> requirements um that staying on top of all of that is a is a lot and I, I just think it's kind of the foundation for everything that was an excellent response documentation and sops training and buy-in and properly operating equipment i mean one two three Done. <laughs> I also really liked what you said about if you see something, say something. Yeah. It kind of in a nutshell and, and not be afraid to say that you see a spot of mold or that something is not right. That the, the sooner you can identify that and point that out and bring that to somebody's attention, the, the more likely you're going to be able to contain it and, and, eliminate it before it affects the rest of your crop and just encouraging your staff not to sort of like be afraid that the fingers are going to be pointed at them that they did something wrong exactly they pointed it out exactly yeah that's that's a really powerful message right there I like that so okay kind of wrapping up here and and we've talked about this a little bit already but but do you consider controlled environment agriculture and, and specifically around food production. Um, do you think, are we a more collaborative or competitive industry? Well, I don't know. I think it, it feels a little competitive right now. Like I said earlier, just kind of being at the very beginning of this really new, exciting industry. I think there's just so much um, excitement and so much drive to like get to the front of the industry. Um, but I will say, you know, going to 
um, events like the indoor ag conference that um, we went to in, in March, um, that environment does feel very collaborative. I mean, I think people, I think there's so many different people working on advancing all different parts of the industry, whether it's, yeah, seeds or grow medium or water treatment systems, or, I mean, there's literally a thousand things to list. And I do think that people do really want to collaborate and do trials together. And I think in order for us to you know, in, increase and in, in further our knowledge and research, we, all of those different pieces do have to work together. And I think um, it's, everyone I've met has been really excited about that. So yeah, kind of on an individual level or, you know, company to company, I think it generally does feel pretty collaborative. And I, I think we all kind of want to work towards the same things too. Like everyone wants to work towards, you know, food security and more sustainable practices and more local food and, and all of those things. So, you know, it does feel like everyone's kind of united in, um, in these problems that we want to tackle, which, which is great and inspiring. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a little bit of hesitancy to, for people to like share, you know, exactly what they're doing or share their exact data or, um, yeah, their, you know, their like secret sauce or, or, or those kind of things. But yeah, I don't know. So I think there's kind of a balance, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, so, so that's kind of where we are now. How, how do you predict our industry is going to evolve over the next five to 10 years? What's going to happen to vertical harvest in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, our plan is to build a lot more farms in the next five to 10 years. So that's what's going to be happening with vertical <laughs> harvest. We're looking at lots of different locations across the U.S. But yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the industry in general, I think um, the technology is moving so fast. That's going to be really fascinating to see. Um, I think, you know, kind of specifically from my growing perspective, um, I think people are gonna research, be researching and, and learning how to grow a, a, a wider variety of crops mm. um, more more efficiently and, and, and kind of better in, in indoor farms, whether it's hydroponic or not. But um, you know, I think right now the really standard stuff is, you know, vinings, vining crops like tomatoes and peppers and and lettuce is really standard. Um I think there is, I think people are going to learn how to grow are, are going to get better at growing a lot, a lot more types of things, which I'm really excited about. I think something we talk about at Vertical Harvest a lot is I'm, I'm hoping, I, I think there probably will be kind of this, this focus on nutritionally dense crops. I think that kind of plays into this whole goal of food security and yeah, and, and climate change. So I I think that there'll be a lot of interest and in, in movement in that direction. Um, and yeah, just, I think I'm excited to see, see the industry get bigger and um, have there be more public awareness and public knowledge. And, and as we were talking about earlier, you know, hopefully more knowledge from the, from the government and regulation side as well. And 
having people kind of acknowledge and, and really be able to see firsthand that this industry does have the potential to solve a lot of issues that we're facing in our in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just on that last note, that is one thing about Vertical Harvest that bringing it back to the beginning of our conversation by having that facade, by being in a city center, on the edge of a city center, anybody walking by can see what you're doing and can be curious. And, you know, even for, for vertical farms who are working in local, you know, in cities and urban environments and, and feeding or serving their local communities, I think there's value there in terms of that public awareness of what we're doing that, you know, you kind of throw this term loosely around of a factory farm, right? And, and in Japan, they call them plant, plant factories. Um, and factory maybe has a negative connotation for, for people, um, but showing them like just having a view to the inside of just a small area, just to say, look, we're, we're growing your food here locally, hyper locally, you're going to eat this lettuce plant at dinner tonight at, at your re- at whatever restaurant you choose. There's also, I mean, only seems like it has positive benefits. Exactly. Definitely. And I think, I, I mean, I agree with you. I do think the word factory has a little bit of a negative connotation, but I also, you know, I hope that we're starting to, that we'll be able to kind of change that perception because we, you know, we do need to be able to produce a lot of, pe- a lot of food to feed yeah. all of the people that we have on this planet. And um, there, there's nothing wrong with, with, you know, producing a lot of food. So, so I do hope that, yeah, people, people become more aware of that. Good call. So last question, what do plants crave? I think my answer is going to be um, plants crave healthy relationships. Um, I think that that, you know, I think they crave healthy relationships with the environment that they're in and with the people that they're around all the time and also with the, with each other, with all of the other plants that they're around all the time as well. That's awesome. I love that answer. That's a great answer. Thanks. So. Um, all right. I end all my podcasts with a few rapid fire questions. So just quick answer, one or two sentences. If you want to expand on anything, um, please feel free to. All right. Are you ready? Yep. All right. Number one, are plants introverts or extroverts? I think they're, I think they're introverts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah, I, well, I think mostly because they're so quiet. Oh, Okay. They Which keep to is, themselves uh, a little. Yeah, they keep to themselves a little. They're quiet. I think that is that's always something I love about working in a in a farm and in, in a greenhouse is you know as being there with all of the plants and you know the plants themselves aren't making any noise, but you can really feel their energy. But yeah, I think I I'm, I think introvert. Okay. When you go home at night, they pull out a good book and they just say, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Can CEA create a more equitable food system? Definitely. Yeah. Do do you want to say why? Well, I think specifically the way that, that vertical harvest is doing it. um, I think we are 
bringing high quality food to local communities and bringing jobs as well. And I think that that, yeah, I think that, that the access to, to good food and good jobs is a big part of, of helping a community become more equitable. Awesome. What's the best advice you've ever gotten about growing plants? Just spend a lot of time with your plants. I like that. Yeah. I like that. They seem to like that too. Yeah. What's the worst advice you've ever gotten? Um, I can't think of anyone who has specifically given me this advice, but I think um, an easy trap to fall into is, you know, is kind of limiting yourself to uh, like, this is what the parameter has to be. This is what the, you know, this is the, this is the number you have to hit at all times in order for your plants to be perfect. And I think Hmm. get kind of like forcing yourself to, you know, to have to fit into these rigid parameters all the time, isn't always going to work Like you're, you know, you're, you're working with living things and there's always going to be a lot of variables going on and probably even more than you actually know about. And so I think, you know, being flexible and, and kind of being curious and being really observant is important. And so I think, you know, you can't, you can't just stick to, this is how I've done it. This is what's going to work every time. I think you got to be a little bit more open-minded than that. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, people say I want it to be 80 degrees and 60% relative humidity all the time. Right. And with no deviations, like it has to be perfect. And, and one of my, always my initial thoughts is, well, maybe your plant wants a little stress, right? I right. mean, what doesn't totally. kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and if you're a tomato plant, you probably need some stress to go into reproduction. So, right. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's just so much about plants that we still don't understand, especially specifically growing them indoors in yeah. our industry. But, you know, I think there's, yeah, there's so much. Yeah. We grew them outdoors for 10,000 years. Now we're trying to figure out how to do it inside and we've been doing it for a few decades. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Last question of the crops that you currently grow at vertical harvest, which do you think bison would prefer? Whoa. (laughs) That's so interesting. I had to pay a little homage to where (laughs) you are, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's see. Well, I think, you know, I think that they would probably like the microgreens the best. I think those would be easy for them to munch on and they are really nutritionally dense. And I think bison are really smart. And I think that Mm. uh, they would probably be looking for a really efficient food source. Um, I I also have a little bit of a cop-out answer to this too. We are currently doing a pilot program with the Teton Teton County Conservation District. And we are um, testing out growing, kind of doing native plant starts for them that we can then plant throughout the community. So there, there are specifically native grasses and I don't know very much about native grasses, but 
they might actually be the food that bison oh. eat. So they might actually <laughs> like those the best. Love it. Love it. I, I just imagine bison like breaking in right to the greenhouse. <laughs> How do they get to those microgreens on the top floor? I know they definitely have to go upstairs, which could be challenging. Uh, well, Emily, thank you so much for a great conversation. Um, it was really great to, to talk about the growing side of vertical harvest. You know, we see you a lot in media and all the great things you're doing for the communities that you're, that you're currently in and, and moving into, but to talk a little bit of tech talk with you, it's been really fun. Um, yeah. Thank you for your insights today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Nadia. It's been so fun to to talk and and yeah, I know I feel like, you know, we barely touched on our grow well model, our employment model and 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 serving, you know, providing jobs for traditionally underemployed people and that's such a, you know, such a driving force for for myself and for everyone that works at Vertical Harvest. But yeah, I mean, I just love all aspects of of the company. So it's been really fun to talk about growing and and the more technical nerdy stuff with you too. Awesome. Well, thank you. Um, Have a great rest of your day and we will talk soon, I'm sure. That sounds great. Thanks, Nadia. Thanks, Emily. That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Emily Churchill, Director of Growing and Food Safety for Vertical Harvest for our series, What Plants Crave. Tune in next week for our next episode. Dr. Saba will be speaking to Tad Hussey, co-founder of Kiss Organics and host of his own podcast called Cannabis Cultivation and Science. Find links to that and Kiss Organics on our website, drgreenhouse.com. I'm Dennis Wadan, and this has been The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.